You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here on a Thursday afternoon from Santa Barbara, California, and I'm here to do one of my weekly live question and answer sessions. Since the global pandemic of the coronavirus, I've been doing two question and answer sessions a week. Uh, Next Monday, this coming Monday, will be the last Monday question and answer session I have. From then on, we're just going to continue on Thursday afternoons as we're meeting here today. Very glad you could join me. I do want to begin before I get into my lead question, just sort of explain uh, what happened last week. Something interesting happened to me that I've never had happen before is my computer screen, so to speak, froze up when it came to the YouTube live stream. So I couldn't see any of the new questions that came in on the side chat. I couldn't see if there were any more viewers coming on. And so it was a little bit of a different experience for me. And so uh, just in that regard, uh, I had my wonderful wife, Ingalil. She quite promptly started texting me screenshots of the question, and we got through it the best we can. And I'm glad we got something out there for everybody. So hopefully not the same technical problems, but we did have a few questions left off from last week. And one of them I wanted to get back to today and make the lead question. Look, I can't promise that I can get to every question that people ask in the sidebar. Uh, We try to keep track of some of the questions that we don't get to and maybe answer them on some later question and answer programs when we uh, pre-record and put it out at this time. But uh, I try to get to as many of them as I can. So the question we're going to deal with first here at the beginning of it, sort of our lead question for this question and answer session here today is, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? And this question comes to us from Tara. And Tara asks this, in Bible college you taught, now Tara says that because she went to our Bible college, uh, her and her husband, she was a student, her husband was part of our staff, it was a great time with Sonny and Tara there. Tara asks, in Bible college you taught the difference between a soulish experience and a spiritual experience, will you remind me which portion of scripture that was out of and expound on that? So really, what I'm going to use is I'm going to use Tara's question here to be the prompting to speak on this whole idea. What's the difference between the soul and the spirit? Because you should know there is a divide in the world of theology. And basically, it's a divide between those who believe that there is a difference between the soul and the spirit and those who believe that there is no difference between the soul and the spirit. Those who believe that there's no difference are often called dichotomists. Dichotomous meaning two parts. They basically believe that the human being is fundamentally made up of two parts, the body and then the soul or the spirit, which in their mind is essentially the same thing. Then there's another group of people called the trichotomists, The trichotomists believe that the human being is fundamentally made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Now, let me be very upfront with you. This is not an easy question to get around from a biblical perspective. And I'll tell you why it's not easy to address. 
It's because the Bible doesn't always use those terms, soul and spirit, in the same way. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word soul, it just refers to an individual. Sometimes we might say, poor soul. And you're not talking about a person's inward soul. You're just talking about them as an individual. Uh, we might say, you know, it was the death of eight souls. And we're not talking about spiritual death. We're just talking about soul in a sense to refer to an individual. Well, sometimes when the Bible uses the term soul, it's used in that way. Sometimes soul refers to the inner immaterial part of a person. And therefore, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the scriptures. I fully recognize there are several passages of scripture where soul and spirit, you could just trade one for the other. Basically, what they're referring to is the immaterial part of a person. We know that we have a material aspect to our being. We have a flesh and blood human body. But we also understand that there is an immaterial part of our human being. There's part of us that exists independently of this flesh and blood body. So some people believe that soul and spirit refers to both of that idea in the same way. Other people seem to think that they mean something different. Now, between the two. And the first one of these is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul prays this sort of a benediction or a blessing to the uh, Thessalonians. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see that there in 1 Thessalonians 5.23? Paul mentions in distinction, at least in some way, the spirit, the soul, and the body, leading to give the idea that there's at least some distinction between the spirit and the soul. Maybe a better passage and a more common passage turned to regarding a distinction between the spirit and the soul is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where we read this. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now notice there, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us that the word of God is so sharp and so powerful that it can even make the division between soul and spirit. Here there seems to be some distinction between soul and spirit. It's not an easy distinction to make. That's why it needs a very sharp sword to make the distinction between soul and spirit. But a division can be made between them. So in my part, I would say, Certainly, there is some distinction between the soul and the spirit. For example, one Bible commentator on Hebrews, he says this on that chapter 4, verse 12 passage. His name is Donald Guthrie. He wrote this. The New Testament use of spirit, pneuma, for the human spirit, focuses on the spiritual aspect of man, i.e. his life in relation to God, whereas Psyche, or soul, refers to man's life irrespective of his spiritual experience, i.e. his life in relation to himself, his emotions, and thought. There is a strong antithesis or division between the two in the theology of Paul. See, I, I believe this is true. I believe that 
the spirit is something that is made alive by God and has real relationship and connection to God. The soul can exist and does exist in someone who isn't even born again. Now, again, when we understand what the Bible means about these terms, soul and spirit, we we understand that the Bible tells us that people have an inner nature and an outer nature. The inner man is sometimes talked about as a spirit, sometimes talked about as soul. And sometimes, as I said before, those two terms are used the same way as a general reference to the inner man. But that's not always the case, such as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, such as in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that we took a look at before. We can say that the soul seems to focus more on individuality regarding the inner life. The soul is often defined as the mind, the will, and the emotions. Again, those are immaterial parts of the human being, but they're real and they exist in everybody, believer or unbeliever. The spirit seems to focus more on supernatural contact and power in the inner life. So again, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Sometimes they're used with a distinction. But notice this, because the soul and the spirit both have reference to the inner man, they are easily confused. Often an experience intended to build up the spirit only blesses, if you want to use that word, blesses the soul. Now. There is nothing wrong with soulish excitement and blessing, something that blesses my mind, something that blesses my will, something that blesses my emotion. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing necessarily in soulish blessing that builds us up spiritually. Now, I think this is important because this is why many Christians go from one exciting experience to another exciting experience, but never really grow spiritually. The ministry they receive is fundamentally soulish. I think it's important for us to understand that soulish things may please us, soulish things may excite us, soulish things may be meaningful to us, but they are not necessarily spiritual. Let me put it to you this way. If you're experiencing the same thing anyone could experience at a particular event, it may be much more soulish than it is spiritual. Okay, I picture in my mind a big arena. And in that big arena, the lights are dark. The lights are flashing. The music is pumping. There's an elaborate show. Maybe there's some fog on the stage and the the, the action on the platform is amazing and the sound is great. And the people in, they're cheering, they're laughing, they're exhilarated, they're thrilled to be there. Now, with what I've just described, that could either be a completely secular music concert Or it could be some Christian arena presentation. What I'm just trying to say is 
Both of those have a heavy element of the soulish experience. And we can look to the scriptures for a few examples of what you might call the soulish life. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 70 and they returned back to him, all excited about the ministry that they accomplished? That's in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Jesus sort of calmed them down. They were excited over the spiritual experiences that they had, but actually those experiences were more soulish in character. Or again, I imagine from what we hear in the Corinthian church about the exercise of the gift of tongues, I imagine that there was some Corinthian Christians who were really excited about hearing the gift of tongues in the public assembly. Wow, it was thrilling. It was, boy, this is this satisfies my curiosity. This is exciting. Listen to it. But, but. It can be of great soulish interest without ever really having a spiritual ministry behind it. Here's kind of a question to ask. If an unbeliever can also be blessed by an experience, then it's soulish. It's not necessarily spiritual. There's a lot of people who feel like they meet God or have transcendent experiences at a great rock concert or at a Broadway play or at some other big event. Now, please listen to me on this point. Soulish enjoyments, soulish excitements are not necessarily bad. There are many wonderful soulish enjoyments of life that God wants us to experience. There can be a legitimate, soulish pleasure in a beautiful sunset, in a romantic relationship, in a music concert. But the great mistake is this, is to confuse the soulish and the spiritual. And it's wrong to live your life for the soulish and then to pretend that it's spiritual. Now, this difficulty in distinguishing between the soul and the spirit shows why the word of God is so powerful and precise. It can pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, which is not easy to do. So look, here's the point. The point is not to eliminate the soulish enjoyments of life but to make sure that the spiritual is also pursued and to whatever extent possible, launch from the soulish into the spiritual. The enjoyment of the sunset may be soulish and it can bless the Christian and the pagan alike, but the Christian can step from the enjoyment of the sunset to a truly spiritual connection with the great God who painted it. Do you see the difference? Let me tell you something, though. Soulish Christian living is a reason why many people fall away. There was something there. It excited or stimulated their inner life, but it was more soulish than spiritual. Listen, let me just ask you something. Do you really like and appreciate the spiritual aspects of the Christian life? True fellowship with God. True wisdom from his word. 
true joy in living a holy life and honoring God in praise and worship. Look, if you can only worship God, if the lights are set at a certain level and the music's at a certain volume and, you know, every aspect of it, that tells me that there is more of a soulish aspect in your worship than you might have previously thought. So have fellowship with Jesus on a spiritual level, not only a soulish level. And I'm just going to say it one more time so that people fully understand this. It's not wrong to enjoy soulish experiences, but only when we replace all our spiritual experiences with soulish ones. Anyway, Tara, thank you for that question. Glad you asked it. As you can tell, it uh, deals with something that I think is kind of important in the Christian life. Okay, let me go to our chat window now and take a look at some of the questions that came in. Levy asks, is gambling a sin? Levy, I got to answer that question by saying, um, usually. Now, I suppose that there is the capability for somebody to say, um, I play cards or I gamble at something. Um, but for me, it's just entertainment. The money I might spend going out to a play or a concert or a theater, uh, instead of spending the money on that, I will entertain myself through gambling. Um, I suppose that that's true in a very theoretical sense, but for many people, gambling goes beyond entertainment. Gambling becomes an obsession and it feeds uh, things that ensnare and entrap other people. I, I can't tell you right now that all gambling is a sin because again, it's possible for somebody to use gambling purely as a form of entertainment. But I will say that gambling is dangerous and Christians need to be careful. They need to be very wary of gambling, uh, especially knowing that gambling has destroyed more than one life and more than one family. So that would be my answer. I know other people might answer that differently, but I would just say that in theory, at least, it could be used purely as a form of entertainment. And then it's just a matter that it doesn't become a form of entertainment that is out of balance or out of measure in a particular person's life. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you there, Levy. Jose says, Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Is Jesus the only one who can intercede for us, or can the church do this duty as well? What is our duty? Well, let me say this. I, I do believe this, Jose, that Jesus is the only one who can intercede for us in heaven. Now, I know that, for example, the Roman Catholic doctrine and perhaps other church traditions as well, uh, these church traditions pray to the saints because they believe that those saints can pray for us in heaven on our behalf. Um, I don't think that the Bible gives any warrant, any permission for us to do that. On earth, it's fine for us to pray to other people. Paul asked believers to pray for him. Jesus prayed for believers on this earth. Uh, Paul actually prayed for other people. So no, we have plenty of examples in the New Testament of people praying for other people, and that's all intercession is. But that all takes place on earth. When it comes to heaven, 
When it comes to the world beyond, the only person that we know of that prays for us and the only person that we should seek to pray for us is Jesus himself. The Bible doesn't give us, I believe, any warrant, any permission for contacting people beyond this life, beyond this world to ask them to pray for us. So that, that's how I would answer that, Jose. On earth, it's fine to ask other people to do it. In heaven, Jesus only. Uh, Luis says, I have one question today, Brother Guzik. Does a person have to believe in the Trinity in order to get to heaven? Thanks in advance. Well, Luis, let me answer the question, and I'll repeat it just so people understand it. The question is, does a person have to believe in the Trinity to get to heaven? Luis, the answer to that question is actually more complicated than a simple yes or no. And let me explain why. First, we understand we are not saved by our theological sophistication. We can be saved without knowing anything about the Trinity. With just knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God, and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. I think that in itself is enough for a person to be saved to go to heaven. We're not saved by the degree of our theological justification. So it's possible for a person to not know anything about the Trinity, but to still go to heaven. However, it's not possible for a person to deny the Trinity and have a relationship with the God of the Bible. Listen, we believe in the Trinity, and we believe it's important, not because we're Bible freaks who like to call everybody on every mistake that they might make about the Bible. No, because we think that the only God that can save you is the God who actually exists. The God that is a figment of your imagination can't save you. The only God that can save you is the God that actually exists. And the only God that actually exists is the God that's revealed to us in this Bible. And the Bible reveals that there is one God in three persons. If a person denies that, especially if they deny it with knowledge of the Bible, then it shows they are rejecting the God of the Bible they are rejecting the only God who can save them. Now, there are certain aspects of sophistication in Trinitarian theology that I'm not going to get into right now. But just that basic belief of one God in three persons, that's what the Bible reveals to us. That's the God who can save us. If a person knowingly rejects that, they're rejecting the only God that exists, the only God that can save. So I hope those two aspects help you out. It, it is possible for a person to not know anything or not know much at all about the Trinity to be saved, but it's not part, possible for a person to reject the biblical doctrine of the Trinity and to have a relationship with the God who actually exists. Okay, Luis, again, I hope that's helpful for you. Ryan asks a question. Why was God so specific in making the tabernacle? Well, Ryan, there's a, actually a pretty interesting answer to that. We know from the book of Exodus that what God had Moses 
and the people working for Moses, of course, build in the tabernacle, instructed in the book of Exodus, was actually made according to pattern. I believe that's the word used in the book of Exodus to refer to according to pattern. And what was the pattern? The pattern was emulating something that exists in heaven. Let me put it to you. The tabernacle is in some way a model of God's throne room in heaven. Of course, we don't know the details. We don't know all how that works out. But in some way, the tabernacle and the temple, which was built upon the same proportion and, and model as a tabernacle, the tabernacle was a model of what exists actually in heaven, God's throne room in heaven. So that's why it was important that God was so specific. They say, I want you to build it and according to these dimensions in this kind of layout and the specific materials that were used in the building of the tabernacle often have a symbolic significance. In other words, the pillars that supported the hanging linen of the surrounding the courtyard of the tabernacle and the pillars that supported the actual fabric of the tabernacle, they were all founded on silver. Silver in the Bible is a metal that's associated with redemption. And it was a God's way of saying this work here at the tabernacle, the existence of this tabernacle is founded. It is based upon the redemption that I bring to my people. So there's a symbolic significance in the specific materials used and in the layout and proportions. It is a model of what is given to us in heaven. Again, the word you want to look for, I believe, in the book of Exodus is the word pattern. Uh, make it according to pattern of what you've seen on the mountain. Agnes asks, how to overcome unbelief? Well, Agnes, that is a very broad question because I think that there's no one type of unbelief. Unbelief actually has several different types or you know manifestations to it. But let me give you one I think very effective way to deal with unbelief. I'm not saying that this will answer every question about unbelief, but I have found it to be extremely helpful. Here it is. We encourage Christians to challenge their faith. Ask the hard questions. Don't just say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Ask yourself, how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? Don't just say God is faithful. How do I know God is faithful? So we ask Christians to challenge their faith and make sure that it is based on a firm foundation. In the same way, I think people should challenge their unbelief. They should challenge their doubts. So let's say I believe that God is going to fail me. I am not believing in his faithfulness. Well. Challenge that. Okay, David, what reasons do I have to believe that God will let me down, that God will deny his promise? So I think, well, has God ever denied his promises to me before? Does God have a history of being unfaithful? Does God's word show him to be unfaithful? And when I start questioning my unbelief, when I start asking it to give evidence for the unbelief, suddenly I realize, I don't have much good reason to believe this. Not at all. 
So just as much as someone might challenge their faith, which can be a good thing to do, we need to challenge our unbelief and not just accept it at face value, but speak to it and make it prove itself. All right, let me continue on here. Uh, Andrea asks a question. I'm in Israel right now visiting, praise the Lord. A friend is asking me to bring her anointing oil because it's helped her when she prays over people. Miracles happen. Is this superstition? Should I bring it for her? All right, um, Andrea, let, let me, my, my first answer, yes, bring her some anointing oil from Israel. But make sure she knows that there's no superstitious power in that oil. There is power in obedience to God. And there are places where God tells us, anoint a person with oil, pray for them, pray for them that they may be healed. The power is in the obedience to God's word, not in some material substance. And I'm going to be very honest with you. There's no more power, spiritually speaking, in oil that comes from Israel than oil that comes from Italy or any other place people grow olives and make oil or whatever kind of oil it is. You see, the power isn't in the object. The power is in the person of Jesus Christ and in the promises he gives us in his word. Now, is it a nice souvenir? Is it something that people will be grateful for? If I've got oil in front of me to pray for somebody and some of it comes from Italy, some of it comes from Israel. Maybe I'll take the Israel one, but I don't do it with a superstitious confidence in that oil. I do it just realizing that the power of God resides in Jesus Christ himself and in the promises he gives us in and through his word. So it's fine for a gift, but not something to put a superstitious confidence in. Hope that helps you, therefore, Andrea, and uh, be blessed in your time in Israel. I was supposed to be in Israel at the beginning part of this month, but we had to cancel because of many of the travel problems that are happening. All right, let me go on. Susanna says, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, spiritual maturity, all his good work in us. What can we do to grow more and in the spiritual maturity? Well, Susanna, I would say a, a few things. First of all, Jesus connected the idea of bearing fruit as a believer to abiding in him. So we seek to consciously connect ourselves to Jesus Christ and to live in him in everything we do. We consciously connect ourselves to Jesus Christ in what we do during the day, in the afternoon, in the evening, at night at work, at home, at school, when we're driving, when we're resting, when we're playing, when we're working, whatever it is, we seek to connect it consciously to who Jesus is and what he does in our lives. To, to quote the title of this famous book by a man named Brother Lawrence, we practice the presence of God in everything that we do. That conscious abiding in Jesus we'll see spiritual life flow out of that. Now, if you do consciously abide in Jesus, that's going to also be a life that is rich in God's word, 
vitally connected to his word. And that's also a source of bearing great fruit. So I would say the spiritual basic disciplines are ways to abide in Jesus. Uh, Reading his word, praying, gathering together with God's people, hearing his word preached, doing Christian service of some kind or another, fasting, giving, all these are spiritual disciplines that we should practice. And as we consciously draw near to Jesus in and through these things, the fruit of the Spirit will be evidenced in greater measure in our life. Hope that's helpful for you there, Susanna. Thank you for asking the question. Carmel or Carmel says, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 16 and 17, removing from fellowship. Are they not allowed to go to church, not allowed to socialize with other believers, treated like heathens and tax collectors? Uh, how do you treat them? Thanks. Carmel, I would say that when people are put out of the fellowship, according to the whole Matthew 18 kind of procedure, if we are to treat them as heathens and tax collectors, here's what we're supposed to do, number one. We're supposed to love them. That's how you treat heathens and tax collectors. You love them. If somebody is under church discipline, it is not a excuse to hate them or to overtly reject them in every sense. But what it is, it's a serious recognition that their life is not spiritually right. And they need to get this right with God. Therefore, they can't just come to church meetings and church gatherings and pretend like everything is okay. Pretend that these sins don't exist. No, they have to repent and make their repentance known before they can be restored to fellowship. Now, I know that in the scriptures, it also speaks of not even eating with such people, but understand the significance of eating with somebody in the biblical culture, in the biblical mindset. That was a exercise of close fellowship and partnership with people. You could even say that it could be uh, connected to having holy communion with them, sharing the bread and the cup. So what I'm just trying to say is this is most pointedly exercised towards pretending that people are right with God when they're not. If a totally pagan unbeliever came into your church meeting, you might allow them to attend, or you might certainly speak to them about spiritual things, but you wouldn't pretend that they're a believer when they are not. That is, I think, the core of what's going on in these church discipline passages, is treating people with love, absolutely, but not pretending that they're right with God when they have demonstrated they're they're rejecting God through uh, their refusal to submit to the discipline that the church would bring to them. Okay, uh, Short Notes says, thanks for the commentary from India. Well, you're very welcome, Short Notes. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, We do have a translation program going on right now in Hindi. And uh, I forget, I think we're having somebody translate the Gospel of Luke, if I remember right. And we've got some people working on some other things in Tamil. And uh, we know God loves the Indian people. And there's so much opportunity for the Gospel to go forth and for believers 
to be encouraged there. Uh, Sunny, or maybe it's Tara, says, thank you, David. The question especially comes up in worship uh, versus music, like you're describing. Yes, it does. And, and again, it's important to say, the soulish benefit that can come from music is good. Just don't confuse it with necessarily spiritual benefit. Okay. Um, Levy, yes, thank you for sharing that verse. Um, 44 Musher says, John saw no temple in heaven. All things are made new. Yes. Now, this question goes back to something that we discussed before about the tabernacle being built according to the pattern of what exists in heaven. And here's the point. There's not a temple in heaven, but there's a throne in heaven. And what the temple or the tabernacle on earth was a model of is not of a heavenly temple, but of the actual throne room of God. I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, Lauren says, hello, Pastor David. I love your commentary and I use it all the time. Can you tell us more about how you came to write it? How many years did it take? Thanks. I'm enjoying these interesting question and answer times. Well, uh, Lauren, the Bible commentary that is online at EnduringWord.com or at Blue Letter Bible, uh, that Bible commentary is a work that goes back more than 30 years. Uh, it's getting close to 35 years that it reflects the work of. And so it's the process of a long um effort of mine. But the bottom line is simply this. I never set out to write Bible commentary. I just found out that what I prepare for myself as teaching notes, as I taught through the Bible, was helpful for other people as Bible commentary. And that's essentially how I came to write. I came to write my Bible commentary because I needed to teach the Bible and I wanted notes in front of me as I taught the Bible. And, and I came to a place where I just sort of prepared my notes in a particular format, according to a particular pattern. And I found out that both the content and the arrangement of it was helpful to at least some other people as a Bible commentary. So that's really the story behind it. I think it's a wonderful story, but it's not terribly dramatic. Uh, I never said, well, now I'm going to be a Bible commentator. No, not really. Uh, I'm just a Bible teacher. I'm just a pastor. Uh, but God kind of unexpectedly led me into this ministry of having a commentary on the entire Bible. So thank you for that question, Laura. And I appreciate that uh, you find the commentary helpful. Okay, a couple final questions here. Uh, yes, Tara, once again, I'm glad to hear that that's encouraging for you. Uh, Lupi, yes, a very important uh, topic. Um, Jim asks a question, were the angels before Genesis 1-1? Jim, I can give you a quick answer to that. Yes. The book of Job describes the angels singing for joy at the creation of the world, of the heavens and the earth. So if they sang for joy at the creation of the heavens and earth, they had to exist before the creation of the heavens and earth. So that's would be my quick answer to that. Yes, angelic beings were created before Genesis 1.1. Uh, Legliz says, should I observe the, the seventh day Sabbath to be saved? Absolutely not. We are not saved 
by the observance of the Sabbath or of any kind of ceremony or of any work of righteousness. We are saved by our trusting relationship in Jesus Christ. We trust and love him. We believe in the gospel, in who Jesus is and what he came to do for us in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. Now, whatever obedience we bring to God after that is important, but it's not the basis of our salvation. And regarding keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day, the Bible makes it very clear that in Jesus Christ, the Sabbath is fulfilled. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians and to all believers by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we should let no one judge us in the way that we observe or don't observe a Sabbath or a new moon or a feast or a festival, that we are free in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath is fulfilled perfectly in him. And if you want to set aside the seventh day, Saturday, to be a day of rest and worship under the Lord, you're absolutely free to, but you also have the freedom in Christ to set aside another day such as Sunday. We also know that the early church had the pattern, we know this from the book of Acts, and we know this from 1 Corinthians, that their pattern was to gather together on the first day of the week, Sunday, not on the Sabbath, the seventh day. Uh, Darren, um, sorry, I don't have time to go in to the Divine Council, Psalm 82 worldview. I don't put a lot of weight in the idea of there being some great divine council that has any weight. Uh, if somebody wants to say that there was an audience of angels when God created things and as God has worked out his plan of the angel ages, of, of course, I, I think that's fine to say that there was an audience of angels. But is if God uh, made some kind of divine counsel that he did things in connection and cooperation with, I, I don't find that. I, I think that that tends to lift the angelic too high. Uh, that, that's my immediate reaction to that. Okay, um, finally, I'll leave Jane's question for last here. Seed Farmer, thank you for your uh, mention about the temple there in heaven. Again, if I could just mention this really quickly. We got questions coming in, and I just can't keep answering new questions as they come in. So I'm going to end it here with, first of all, the temple that is described earlier in the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, John says that in the new heavens and the new earth, he saw no more temple. That's kind of the difference between the two. And Jane, why did Jacob claim Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own? Well, first of all, uh, that was just within the plan of God, if you just want to say that. But since he had been denied this relationship with Joseph in his adult life, God gave him a reward of a double blessing of both Joseph's sons. And plus, I would just say, in God's providential plan, God wanted there to be two tribes of Joseph. Isn't that interesting? That we don't have a tribe of Joseph. We actually have two tribes of Joseph, the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. That was just God's plan to make, actually, if you want to say, it's an interesting thing to go into that I'm not going to go into right now, but there were 13 tribes of Israel when you count the two sons of Joseph. Anyway, that's another thing altogether. Um, I'll end it there. Supak, I'll try to get to your question another time, but thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. 
So appreciate it. Remember to click subscribe. Remember to click the like, the thumbs up. Remember to click for notifications. And uh, my Bible commentary, if it's helpful for you or somebody else, please go to it, EnduringWord.com. There you can reference not only my commentary in English and in Spanish throughout the entire Bible, but you can also reference uh, the works we have in other languages. Prominently among those other languages is Arabic and Chinese. So please pray for the ongoing work of that Bible commentary. Glad you could join me for today. God bless you. And I'll meet with you again on Monday uh, next week when we'll do another live question and answer time. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.